Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick continues our series of messages on the Book of the Twelve. Today, looking at the prophet Amos. And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. Alivina Phil had invited me up this morning to sing that hymn. I would have said no because I love you guys too much to put you through that. Well, if I was to ask you, what do you think an important character trait for a prophet would be? What kind of answers do you think you might come up with? For me, I think perhaps one of the most important character traits a prophet can have is to be a clear communicator. After all, you're bringing God's message to the masses, so you'd better be able to communicate clearly. Case in point, from a more modern perspective, a number of years ago, a document was floating around the Internet, and it had to do with correspondence that took place between the pilots who flew for UPS, or United Parcel Service, and the mechanics who serviced and maintained their aircraft. Commercial aircraft have what are called snag sheets, and on these sheets, pilots can record any deficiencies that they find in the aircraft at the end of the flight. And then the mechanics come along to service the aircraft, and they can repair these deficiencies, and they have somewhere to record what it was that they did to correct the deficiencies. Well, apparently, not all UPS pilots are good communicators. And some of what they meant to say was open for interpretation, shall we say. Now, I don't know how truthful this document was when you're dealing with the Internet, but UPS neither confirmed nor denied its existence. But here's some examples that took place and kind of the humorous interpretations that the mechanics played upon them. One pilot wrote in the snag sheet, left inside main tire almost needs replacement, to which the mechanic recorded in the solution section, almost replaced left main inside tire. Another pilot wrote, something loose in cockpit, to which the mechanic responded, something tightened in cockpit. Another pilot wrote in, dead bugs on windshield, to which the mechanic replied, live bugs on back order. (laughs) And still another pilot wrote, friction locks cause the throttle levers to stick, to which the mechanic responded, that's what friction locks are supposed to do. (laughs) And finally, one of my favorites, one pilot wrote in, number three engine on the right wing is missing. To which the mechanic responded, after a brief search, missing right engine found attached to right wing. (laughs) Well, communication is key. And this morning we are taking a look at Amos. And as we look through this, I want you to concentrate on the prophet's messages. How he brought them to the masses, what he said, and what the implications were. This morning we're going to be diving into the story of the prophet Amos. It's nine chapters long. We're going to be going through this, not quite at the speed of sound, but pretty close to it. We're going to take a brief look at who Amos was. We'll look at God's judgment on six Gentile nations that surrounded Israel. And then we're going to take a look at God's judgment against Judah and then Israel itself. Israel was the main prophetic ministry for which Amos was called to. And we'll spend some time on the details of God's condemnation of Israel, as well as why God was doing so, and the hope for Israel's future. And we'll close with lessons that we can learn today 
from the story of this Old Testament shepherd turned prophet. Now, some interesting things that I've noticed as we started studying these 12 books of the prophets are some of the common themes that have begun to emerge and some of the parallels amongst the prophets themselves with their messages. Some of what I have in my message this morning will sound familiar to that which you heard from Phil's and uh, Carrie's messages earlier. See if you can spot them as we go. Well, who was Amos? Amos is defined at the very beginning of the book as one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is a small settlement about 16 kilometers south of Bethlehem. You can still find it on Google Maps, Maps if you search for it. 16 kilometers is about the distance from Home Depot to where we are here this morning. Now, the Hebrew word that we translated as shepherds is <clears throat> a, um, not a very often used word for shepherd in the Hebrew language. And it may indicate that Amos was more than just a hired hand tending the flock. Hebrew scholars believe that Amos was possibly a sheep breeder, a businessman of sorts. And in chapter 7, Amos describes himself as a dresser or caretaker of sycamore fig trees. So not only was he a rancher, but he was also a farmer as well. Now, whether he was a wealthy businessman or just getting by, God had alternate plans for him. And Amos relays again in chapter 7 that God took him from tending the flock and he said, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, keep in mind that Amos was not from Israel. He was from Judah to the south. And we'll get into that a little bit more later on. Amos also declared about himself he was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son. That is, he had no formal training as a prophet. Now, the dating of this book is uh, fairly straightforward to a certain extent, for the kings of both Judah and Israel are named at the beginning of the book. And it's difficult to pin down the exact date, but scholars seem to focus in on the date of A.D. 760. And in all, Amos prophesied in the nation of Israel for probably no more than one or two years. Well, let's take a look at some of the prophecies that Amos brought against six of the Gentile nations that were almost surrounding Israel. Now, I could have put a map up here on the screen and pointed them all out to you, but we're going to go really old school, and I want you to put on your geographical imagination cap as we look at these, and I'll describe where they all are. But if you get lost along the way, don't worry, because the point that I want you to remember is that these nations form almost a complete circle around Israel, and I think that's significant. Well, these six nations that were surrounding the Jewish people were judged by God and found to be guilty of crimes against humanity. It serves as a reminder that God's moral standard as revealed in the Bible was and is not just a standard for the Jewish nation of the Old Testament time period or by extension Christians in the New Testament church age, but it extends to all humanity. The words that introduce these judgments for three transgressions and for four, is a poetic way of expressing totality, as three can express plurality or completeness in the Hebrew language, and four steps it up a notch to totality. Well, the first one on the list is Damascus. Amos chapter 1, verse 3. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she thrust Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Now, Damascus was part of Syria, that's to the northeast of Israel, and this city dates back 4,000 years. Damascus' crime against humanity in God's eyes 
was the destruction of the people of Gilead. When Amos describes Syria's inhumanities towards the inhabitants of Gilead that was to their south, he used a farming analogy. Because they threshed Gilead using sledges having iron teeth. Now one method of separating kernels of grain from the hull at that time period was to pile up all the grain and have oxen drag heavy wooden sledges over top of it to break the kernels free. Thus, Amos describes Syria as crushing the inhabitants of Gilead into the ground. From there we move on to Gaza, chapter 1, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Gaza at that time was one of the five chief cities of the Philistines in the regions that's to the southwest of Jerusalem along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And I think everybody has heard of Gaza these days. Gaza's crime against humanity in God's eyes had to do with exiling, probably into slavery, an entire group of people to Edom that was to their east. And from Gaza we move on to Tyre. Chapter 1, verse 9. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. <clears throat> because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. Now Tyre was a city to the northwest of Israel, also along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And their crime against humanity in God's eyes is the same of that as the Philistines of Gaza, only it's ratcheted up a notch because they broke a covenant commitment in doing so. And then we move on to Edom, who was the recipient of all these captives. In chapter 1, verse 11, it reads, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually, and his fury flamed unchecked. Edom was located to the southeast of Jerusalem, along the southern shores of the Dead Sea. Their crime against humanity, in God's eyes, was their relentless anger towards those who Amos referred to as their brother. And then from there we move on to Ammon, chapter 1, verse 13. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he ripped open pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. Amman was located to the east of the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And the Ammonites' crime against humanity in God's eyes was the vicious and brutal attacks of their neighbors in order to extend their borders. And then finally, the sixth nation we have is Moab. Chapter 2, verse 1 reads, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. Moab was also to the southeast of Jerusalem, just north of Edom. And their crime against humanity in God's eyes was the desecration of the remains of the king of Edom. Now, both the inhabitants of Edom and Moab were descended from Lot of Sodom and Gomorrah fame. Both of these nations had a genealogical connection. Well, up to this point, Amos has been listing the crimes and punishment of the Gentile nations surrounding the Jewish population, and it forms almost a complete circle at this point. 
God's punishment for these nations would be to destroy their strongholds and defenses, making them vulnerable to attack from other kingdoms. I can just imagine Israel cheering on Amos as they heard these prophecies against their enemies surrounding them, saying something like, Yes, Amos, tell us more about these prophecies against our brothers, against, uh, uh, against us. Bring it on, brother. We want to hear more of this. Well, the Am- then Amos does something we likely were not expecting. He relays God's judgment on Judah to their south, thus completing the circle around Israel. Now, God's judgment was starting to get closer to home. See, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. So though Judah was not part of Israel, the inhabitants of both nations were Jewish. And about Judah, Amos prophesied in chapter 2, verse 4, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. The crime that God had judged Judah to be guilty of was not a crime against humanity like it was with those six foreign nations. Judah was judged by God to be guilty of failing to keep the Torah. That is God's covenant instruction handed down to Moses. The punishment was to be the same, the destruction of their strongholds and defenses. But Amos doesn't stop at Judah. Amos continues, and this time he takes it right to the front door of Israel. And we can read about that in chapter 2, verses 6 to 13, which reads, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. I destroyed the Amorite before him, though he was tall as the elders, as the cedars, and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you in the desert for forty years to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes loaded with grain. Amos goes into much greater detail the crimes and punishment of Israel. The Gentile nations were guilty of crimes against humanity. Judah was guilty of crimes against God's covenant law handed down to them through Moses. And here Israel is judged by God to be guilty of the crime of social injustice that worked its way into and convoluted or twisted their worship with God. Amos used only the equivalent of two and a half chapters to cover the prophecies of seven nations, including Judah. The rest of the book that bears his name is reserved for God's judgment against Israel. Now, Amos introduces God's judgment on Israel in the second half of chapter 2. And here he demonstrates that Israel is far from being any better from the nations around them. In fact, Israel is even more worthy of condemnation than the others were. Amos again uses a farming analogy in describing God's judgment and guilt. 
In verse 13 of chapter 2, Amos describes the fate that would befall upon the nation of Israel when he said, Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The weight of God's punishment would be like a cart loaded with grain rolling over them. Today one might say, the weight of God's punishment would be like a loaded semi-truck rolling over you. God's judgment of Israel can be broken down into five addresses. The first three are introduced with the words, Hear this word. Chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. Here God goes on to indicate that of all the nations of the earth, the Jewish nation was closest to him as his chosen people. And then in chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Amos gets close and personal with the attitudes of the women in Israel. I suspect this analogy would have just as been, would have been just as unflattering in Amos' day as it would be today. Bashan was a rich pasture land that would produce plump and healthy cattle. Even the women of Israel were guilty of oppressing the poor and needy just to satisfy their wants. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Now the word lament in the Bible is used to express grief and sorrow. A lament was used as a poem of mourning, and here Amos mourns the pending demise of Israel. Neither the prophet nor God was taking delight in the pronouncement of doom that was being made on Israel. The last two extended addresses that Amos makes is characterized by the use of the word woe. Picking it up in chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Other prophets use the expression the day of the Lord, such as Carius recorded use of it chronologically. Woe is used in the Bible as an exclamation. It can be an exclamation of one's misfortune, such as the expression, woe is me. But in Amos' case, it's an exclamation of judgment directed towards Israel. Here it appears the Israelites were longing for the day of the Lord. They saw this as a day of judgment and destruction of their enemies. Whereas Amos was saying, be careful what you wish for. And then in chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. The inhabitants of Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, was the capital city of Judah to the south of them, and Samaria was the capital city of Israel to the north. Both were accused of being complacent in their reliance on their natural defenses of their fortified cities, instead of putting their faith and trust in God who had led them to these cities out of the land of Egypt from which they were captive. The Assyrian Empire was sweeping across the land at that time and had already conquered greater cities than those of Judah and Israel. And from the ESV translation in chapter 6, verse 4, Woe to those who lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Israel was at a height of wealth and influence that had not been seen since the reign of King Solomon. It was part of a strategically located trade route and it had fertile land for both food and livestock. 
As my first ground school instructor would often reply, they were flying along fat, dumb, and happy, oblivious to what was about to happen. Their wealth and success had led them into a religion that was based more on ritual and a belief that because they were God's chosen people, he would protect them through anything. Well, God wanted their love, not their sacrifice. He wanted their worship, not their wealth. And this fat, dumb, unhappy group of people were in for a rude awakening. Yet through all the prediction of the coming destruction, hope and life is still offered to those who would come with a repentant heart to follow God. Interspersed in the pending destruction of Israel and Judah in chapter 5 are the words, Seek me and live. Let's take a look at chapter 7 as it deviates from the pattern of prophecy and judgment that had been going on up till now. Amos switches from prophecies to visions that God showed him. See, in chapters 3 to 6, Amos documents the reason for God's judgment against Israel. Legal injustice, economic exploitation, religious hypocrisy, luxurious indulgence, and boastful complacency. Well, in chapter 7, Amos goes on to describe the coming judgments through a series of five visions. The first vision is found in chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the second crop was coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. The Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. Now, whether one interprets these visions as literal or figurative, just the mention of such a plague would have gotten everyone's attention. A plague of locusts was perhaps one of the most feared of natural disasters. A swarm of locusts whose soldiers were countless with a single-minded mission of devouring everything in sight would cause panic, not just in biblical times, but more modern times as well. One such swarm happened in the Midwest U.S. in 1875 when a swarm of the now-extinct Rocky Mountain locusts descended upon the area. And one scientist calculated the size of the swarm by estimating the speed that it traveled and how long it took to travel. And he estimated the size of the swarm to be 500,000 square kilometers. That's half the size of Ontario. And they estimated the swarm contained from 3.5 to 12.5 trillion locusts. It's reported that locust swarms can not only consume anything and everything green, but they'll consume leather, bark, cloth. The devastation left behind is total. In Amos's vision, he saw God preparing a locust swarm, and Amos knew the timing of this invasion would be devastating. Famine and death would surely follow such an attack. Knowing the nation would die if the invasion proceeded, Amos begged God to relent. And God did relent. But although God relented, his call for justice and punishment still stood. The second vision that God showed Amos was the destruction of Israel by fire. And that's found in chapter 7, verses 4 to 6. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. <clears throat> the Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. Anything combustible, but also the water and moisture of the land. Death and destruction would be assured if this happened. Again, Amos cried out to God and God relented. 
Now, unlike the story of Jonah, where Jonah wanted to see the city of Nineveh destroyed, Amos was pleading for the survival of Israel. Neither Amos nor God wanted to see Israel destroyed, but justice and punishment needed to be satisfied. Then Amos was shown a third vision, which this time was unalterable. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. This is what the Lord showed me. He was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I answered. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam. Plumb lines are not used very much anymore because of laser technology, but a plumb line is an accurate tool to establish if a building or a wall is straight and true. In the third vision, God is showing Amos that indeed he had built Israel straight and true from the beginning, but now the nation had become crooked and it needed to be torn down, and this time God would not relent. Amos did not keep these visions to himself as evident in the discourse between himself and Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, which was the central location to Israel's worship at that time that was set up when they broke away from Judah. This discourse did not go well between the two, with Amaziah saying to Amos, We don't want your kind here. Go back to where you came from, Amos. Go back to Judah and prophesy there. We don't want to hear your words anymore. God's message for Amaziah through Amos would be one of condemnation for both him and his family because of his hard-heartedness. Then God showed Amos a fourth vision. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. This vision is self-explanatory. When the ripest fruit on the vine, it's time for the harvest. And the reaper was at Israel's door waiting to exact the wrath of God. The description that follows is one of death and destruction. Ruin would indeed come to Israel. And just a few decades after Amos' prophecies, the Assyrian nation would invade Israel, destroy their cities, and take, that, and take into captive the Jewish nation. A fifth vision came to Amos in chapter 9 that would see the destruction of the temple of Bethel. The corruption of the system of worship that God had established through Moses was singled out in this description of destruction. Now Amos ends with a final proclamation, not of finality of judgment, but rather of future restoration and prosperity. And I want to read these words out loud from those verses because as troubling as a prophecy of Israel's destruction is, and it did take place, as troubling as the destruction of that prediction was, the hope that remains for the future restoration for those who call upon the Lord is an important reminder for us today that as bad as things may seem in our life, whatever they may be, there are still good things to come for those who put their faith and trust in God. And that is eternal rewards that we need to not take our eyes off of. An electrician I used to know would often remark, yep, better days are ahead. And indeed, better days are ahead for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's read this description of Amos' future hope for the nation of Israel. And this will bring us to the end of this book. 
And uh, um, we can find that in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. The final five verses are reserved for Amos's prophecy of the remnant of David being restored. Amos starts off with the phrase, in that day. Amos makes other references to the word day, such as the day of the Lord. And it's important to remember that the word day is not used to indicate 24 hours here, but rather it's an expression of a period of time to come. He may just as easily have said it had been around death and destruction, but now there is reason for hope. David's tent, or booth as the word can also mean, is a reference to a protective canopy that would protect an individual. It's a figurative description of the dynasty of King David's kingdom that God had promised would never cease and from whom restoration would come not only for the nation of Israel, but for all nations that bear the name of God. It's significant that Amos mentions Edom as Edom was a nation that was perpetually hostile towards Israel. Even Edom and other Gentile nations will fall under the protection of David's lineages who bear the name of God. God promised David that his line would never cease. And the importance of this was to be realized when on that fateful night, a virgin will give birth to the Savior of the world. James, a half-brother of Jesus, quoted from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. After listening to Paul's description of God working among the Gentiles, James confirmed that God's restoration was not just for the Jews, but for us as well who are the Gentiles. Israel does have a special place among the nations with God. But it's not a place of exclusiveness. Rather, its prominence is rooted in the mission that God chose them for. That mission not only included the lineage through whom the Messiah would come, but the descendants of Abraham would also bear the messages that God has for those around them. Israel didn't always do a good job of this. This future restoration that Amos describes has yet to be fulfilled. In that day or when that time comes, there will be peace, not war. Abundance, not famine. The land will be so productive that no sooner has the reaper harvested the crop than the plowman will follow behind, planting the ground, readying the ground for immediate planting. And no sooner would the planter plant the grapevines than the wine presses will be filled with the harvest. The exiled nation will return, and as Amos poetically put it, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I gave them, says the Lord your God. I don't know how God's timing works. I can't predict when this will come to pass. Many have tried to figure it out and what will be the signs of the approach of God's prophecy fulfillment. I suspect just as many have pulled their hair out trying to do so. Rather than trying to figure out the timelines for the future, I believe our time can be better spent productively figuring out how to be prepared for when this comes. Well, let's recap the message that uh, Amos brought to the Israelites. 
The Lord is the creator of the universe. Therefore, his ethical norms are universal and all people are subject to judgment in light of them. Secondly, justice and righteousness and the treatment of other people are key evidences to a right relationship with God. You are not saved by doing good works. Rather, it's part of the evidence that you are being saved. Thirdly, religious ritual in the absence of just and righteous treatment of others is disgusting to God. And fourth, Israel's covenant with the Lord did not guarantee special protection for them when they broke that covenant. Rather, it meant they would be held to a higher standard of obedience and would be subject to more scrutiny and judgment. The fifth point, thus the day of the Lord would not be a time of miraculous deliverance from their enemies for unrepentant Israel. Rather, it would be a time of terrible destruction. And finally, the sixth point, yet a faithful remnant would be preserved and would someday see a glorious restoration and blessing. Well, that brings us to what principles can we glean from the book of Amos for us living in today's world in the 21st century. Well, let's take a look at these six items that I just listed and see how they apply to us today. The first point again, the Lord is the creator of the universe. Therefore, his ethical norms are universal and all people are subject in judgment in light of them. This is just as true for us today as it was for the nations surrounding Israel in Amos' day. We will all be held to an account. And some people ask, why does God allow evil in the world? Well, I don't proclaim to have a universal answer for that. But I can assure you that everyone, everyone without exception, will stand before God someday to give an account for their actions. The second point, justice and righteousness in the treatment of other people are key evidences of a right relationship with God. You are not saved by doing good works. Rather, it's part of the evidence that you are being saved. When Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He answered, and this is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Follow these as a Christian and you can't go wrong. The third point, religious ritual in the absence of a just and righteous treatment of others is disgusting to God. When Jesus was having dinner at Matthew, the tax collector's house, who was considered a a sinner because of his occupation, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their criticism thusly. And this is from Matthew chapter 9, verses verses 12 and 13. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. Many, many people have a form of religion but their hearts are far from God as evidenced by their attitudes. The fourth point, Israel's covenant with the Lord did not guarantee special protection for them when they broke that covenant. Rather, it meant they would be held to a higher standard of obedience and would be subject to more scrutiny and judgment. A day will come when even Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our actions and we will receive blessings or lack thereof accordingly. Paul, in his distinction between our earthly dwelling and our heavenly dwelling, said in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in this body, whether good or bad. The fifth point, thus the day of the Lord would not be a time of miraculous deliverance for unrepentant Israel, rather it would be a time of terrible destruction. The Israelites thought their special standing before God would protect them regardless. In the parable of the sheep and the goats, there will be a time when Christ will separate those 
who put their faith and trust in him as evidenced by their actions of charity and humanity from those who rejected Christ as evidenced by their lack of charity and humanity. Those whom, are, those whom are found in a right relationship with Christ will be welcomed into heaven. And those who reject Christ will be destined for utter destruction. And finally, the sixth point. Yet a faithful remnant would be preserved and would someday see a day of glorious restoration and blessing. Amos prophesied a restoration of Israel, the likes the earth has never witnessed. John in Revelation 21 verse 1 saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the description of that is just as truly as amazing. The future certainly looks bright for those who put their faith and trust in God. But we need to be in constant prayer for those who trust in themselves for salvation rather than putting their faith in God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this opportunity we've had to come together this morning to worship you, to love you together as a group of believers, to offer up our praises and our thanksgiving in words and song and thoughts and in prayer. Lord, I pray that we would be found right, righteous and correct in front of you. Though we are never perfect, Lord, may we, may we be seen as your good and faithful servants. For those times that we fail, correct us. Correct our direction. Correct our words. Correct our thoughts. That we may be worthy servants for your kingdom and powerful ambassadors for those among us. I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.